Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. George Gammon, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me, buddy. <laughs> Always a pleasure. You. Always a pleasure. Um, super excited about this conversation. We just had like a one <laughs> one hour preamble before we even hit record. Yeah, we should have recorded that. Yeah, <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about um, today. I guess the theme of this conversation is focusing on. To what extent sound money is a solution to the problem of big government? And yeah. to the extent that it's not a solution, what are other viable solutions? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but core to the theme of that discussion is our, our general agreement. I think that big government is a problem for the free market process and we need a viable strategy for reducing the scale and scope and overreach of government pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with that in mind, we're going to jump into a lot of the nitty gritty from a lot of different angles. Um, but I thought it would be really useful for us to just start out going through things that we probably agree on. So that way we have a good grounding for anywhere we might diverge later. And hopefully we'll really iron out some definitions in the process too, so that we're, we're speaking the same language as we go. Um, so I'll start here and I'll just like to get your, I guess, comments on each of these. I just came up with these things, knowing you, knowing your work and me and my work, I 
figured there's a few of these areas that we probably agree upon. First one would be that um, revenues of the state. The state is a business and it generates revenue from taxation and inflation. Um, now that inflation word's a little muddy because are we talking about monetary inflation? Are we talking about price inflation? So I guess I'll try to use the term debasement to be more clear. Well, I'm talking about the actual monopolization and printing of money or, or these other mechanics we'll get into like open market operations, bailouts, et cetera. Um, any, any comments or thoughts on that, that the, the state itself really is a business that generates revenue through, through taxation and currency debasement? Yeah. So I, I obviously it's, it's, it's revenue. That's for sure. And it's, I think they're a beneficiary of consumer price inflation, not to switch the term, mm -hmm. but, um, but I don't know that an increase in M2 money supply, if that's how you're defining debasement, mm -hmm. is always a causal or always causes consumer price inflation. You know, that's one thing that the more research I do, I realize, and this is one thing we talked about before, there isn't really a fixed relationship between the increase in M2 and consumer price inflation. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people push back and say, well, George, you can't really take the, the government CPI numbers. But and that's true. But if if you're one person that assumes the CPI is actually higher, that strengthens my position. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't weaken my position there. No, I, I was saying that if if you look at uh, times in in U.S. monetary history, you see that there isn't really a fixed relationship between M two money supply. And I'm using that specifically because those are kind of a measurement of the currency units that are in the real economy chasing goods and services. And a lot of people say, well, George, that's not the correct definition of inflation. Like I'm talking to my buddy, Peter Schiff, you know, he's going to say that. Mm -hmm. And he'd say, well, it's, it's more so an expansion of the money supply, which is an expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. But then if you look at the uh, quote unquote base money, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, if you look at bank reserves as an example, there really isn't a strong correlation there at all uh with the the bank reserves and actual m2 money supply mm -hmm. so i i don't I, you know you can say well george will look at uh 2020 and yeah that's right i i absolutely get it but look at the 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 100 years prior to 2020 and and, you, and especially when you look at the years from like 1980 to like 2007 i'm using those because i got that right off the top of my head and this is a time of fiat money right well let's, let's, let's not forget um and so 1980 we had about 40 billion dollars worth of bank reserves which actually includes vault cash which i found that interesting because when you look at the fed's balance sheet prior to the gfc uh the liability side was mostly and i'm you know 85% or so would be currency in circulation. Mm. So I always tried to think about, okay, well, how much of that currency in circulation 
is actually on banks' balance sheets in the form of vault cash, but they which they could use for their reserve requirement. But the more I I, I read the Fed's uh, website and whatnot, I found that that bank reserve number that you see on like a Fred chart that actually includes vault cash. Mm. So when you see a separate line item on the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet uh, for cash in circulation, uh, that that's actually separate. So any cash in circulation isn't really impacting the uh, bank's reserve requirements, right? Mm -hmm. So just kind of a, a side note there. But if you look at 1980, that about 40 billion with a B of bank reserves. And if my memory serves me right, M2 is right around 1.5 trillion. And then you fast forward to 2007 and they still had, believe it or not, about 40 billion in bank reserves, but uh, M2 had grown to like 7.5 trillion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're like, well, how on earth did, did did they do that? And then you you what you start to realize is uh, the banking system is at the center of the monetary universe. And I I think the, the example that I always use that we were talking about earlier is uh, you've got the Earth revolving around the sun. And most people believe that the Federal Reserve is the sun. Mm -hmm. But the more I study and the more I research, I realize uh, that the Federal Reserve is actually the Earth that's revolving around the banking system. Mm -hmm. So it, my, what's my point? My point here is that when we're saying the, the federal government is uh, debasing uh, the currency supply, that implies that they're increasing M2 to a degree to which we are um, seeing consumer price inflation. And I don't know that I would fully uh, agree with that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say, oh, George, well, you're splitting hairs, you're splitting hairs. Um, not really, because I think here the devil is definitely in the details. If you're trying to figure out what the culprit the, the, the true culprit or the the, the variables mm -hmm. that really go into this consumer price inflation that all of us agree is detrimental uh, for the poor and, and the middle class. You know, the, the, the end game here, as far as what we're trying to achieve, I think is, 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 is the same. I think, you know, all of us in the space, we're trying to set up an environment that is going to be conducive to the free market creating productive price deflation. And we're also trying to create a, a very a, a society where you've got a, a very small government. And I think where we might differ is I, I, I and you know, and you know, when I came at this originally, when I started my YouTube channel. I was under the impression that sound money was a panacea. If we could just have sound money, you know, base money that was gold or Bitcoin or something, that this would reduce the size of government. But And so I wanted that to be true. But as I started to study more and more and more and more and look at the data, I saw that although that is definitely desirable, I would never say that sound money or redeemable money isn't desirable or currency units. 
Um, but I'm just, but what I would say is that if you're putting a hundred percent of your time and energy into sound money, sound money, sound money, you're missing the forest for the trees. And if we truly want to create a society or move towards a society that uh, where we're seeing, you know, potentially consumer price deflation, or we're seeing all the benefits um, that we that we attach to sound money, mm-hmm. I think we have to focus more, much more of our time and energy and mental bandwidth on actually reducing the size of government mm-hmm. itself. Because I don't think that sound money is synonymous with small government. And uh, just as a thought experiment to maybe help articulate my view, I, I, I put out on Twitter the other day, would you prefer a society that had fiat currency, but yet favored small government? Or would you prefer a society that had uh, sound money, but yet favored big government? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so many of the, the replies I got will say, George, well, I'd rather have A, I'd rather have you know sound money because, or I'm rather, I'd rather have B because sound money will give me small government. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know that it will. I, and, and so let me go ahead, because I know a lot of the listeners or viewers right now are probably, you know, just uh, screaming at the computer right now saying, oh, George, you're crazy. Of course, you know, what would, uh, of course, if the government can't print money, it's going to prevent the government from growing. So here's my my main argument there, which I can back up with tons and tons and tons of data, numbers, you know, what we were talking about earlier, is currently the uh, federal government, you know, going back to probably what, the 1940s or so, uh, has, regardless of the tax rates, has pretty much received about 18% of GDP in revenue. So that would imply that their minimum spending is 18% of GDP, right? Because that's what they're collecting just in tax revenue. So that does not include a deficit, that the Fed is not involved in that in any way, shape, or form. And then if you look at the additional government spending as a result of local and state government and it is true you know there i'm including taxing and i'm including selling bonds Mm -hmm. but the the money that would be generated to that local and state government would be a result of collecting money uh that already was in existence Mm -hmm. that that would you can't peg that on a money printer right because even if they're selling bonds they're selling that to a bank or they're selling that to the average Joe and Jane, a pension fund, what have you. So they're not printing money while the bank could be, but the majority of that, let's say, is going to a pension fund or a average Joe and Jane that's not printing the money to buy the bond in the first place. So if you just take a look at those two categories. So again, we're talking about the amount of uh, spending as a percentage of GDP that the federal government would do just as a result of taxation no deficits whatsoever. And then you combine that with state and local, you're at about 35%. So that, that I think you could poll Bitcoiners, uh, gold bugs, you know, libertarians. And I think all of them would agree that that's big government right there. <laughs> and, so, and that completely excludes uh, the Federal Reserve. 
And you could argue, well, George, you know, without the deficits or with higher interest rates, the deficits would be a lot lower. You know, like look at Argentina as an example. There's one thing that I've discussed with Lynn, you know, quite extensively is uh, the fact that, well, if a specific government can't print their own currency, then it constrains them. And yes, I, I would completely agree. But again, my example there, my hypothetical, completely excludes federal deficit spending. Mm-hmm. And so why is that 30? So number one, that 35%, I think represents quote unquote, big government. And then you say, okay, well, maybe that that government is small enough. And then I go back and look at the period after 1940. And I've always found that very interesting, Robert, because I'm sure you've looked at a chart uh, prior to 1940. And then after in terms of uh, the CPI. Mm-hmm. So what, what I find fascinating is prior to 1940, uh, the CPI kind of looked like a heartbeat. You know, it was just like up, down, up, down, up, down. And throughout the 1800s in aggregate total, it would slope down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it kind of level out and whatnot. But uh, it was just kind of inflation, deflation, inflation, deflation. And then once we get to the late 1930s or on 1940, the heartbeat goes away. And there's a couple little periods there, I believe in the early 1950s and then in 2009, when we had just a brief bout of uh, deflation. In fact, I know we had one in uh, 1948 or nine because it preceded, or uh, it was, excuse me, it was after we had 19.5% inflation in 1947. But my point there is that from, let's say, the ni- late 1930s to uh, the current uh, day, here 2023, um, you had mostly inflation every single year. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, why? What's, what's the variable there? It's not the Fed, right? We had the Fed in 1913. So what, what happened? And I think there are a few legal changes that were made in the 1930s, such as Social Security, such as welfare, minimum wage, that uh, apply to that or were applicable. But also, I think it's because we got to a threshold of government spending as a percentage of GDP, which was far more conducive to consumer price inflation, even with M2 money supply growing at the same rate as it did, let's say in the late 1800s, when we had significant deflation. So one of the, the you know, I use three time frames as a kind of an interesting example, because from 1870, roughly, to, you know, it was like 1868 or something like that, to like 1899, but roughly 1870 to 1900, we saw M2 money supply grow by about 400%. Now, we also saw real GDP grow by about 300. So real GDP grew almost at the same rate as M2. But we had 45% deflation, 45%. Mm -hmm. But then you look at 30, 1930 to 1960, roughly, and you had the same M2 money supply growth. But what's interesting is now, instead of having a 45% deflation, you had about a 75% inflation. Mm -hmm. And then 
you start to notice that, oh, wait a minute here. Real GDP growth went from 300% in the late 1800s down to 200% mm-hmm. from 1930 to 1960. So then you go, let's say to uh, another time frame here, uh, 1990 to roughly 2020, and we had that same 400% M2 money supply growth. But this time, instead of it didn't produce a negative 45%, we all know, it didn't produce 75%, it produced around 120%. So it produced a higher rate of consumer price inflation. But if you look at real GDP growth, it was only 94%. Mm-hmm. So we go from 300% real GDP to 200% to 94%. And so what happened is if you can keep M2 consistent, but the only thing, the only variable you change is uh, real GDP, you see consumer price inflation go up in relationship to the delta between M2 and real GDP. Mm-hmm. So then the, the next part of the journey for me, the intellectual journey and trying to figure this out is I'm like, okay, well, it, it's not just now, granted, if you're going to go out there and do a Weimar Germany, you know, <laughs> and if you if the, if the government is going to somehow create M2 directly and give everyone $5 million, that, yeah, that's definitely going to do it. But see there, what you're doing is you're increasing M2 in, in, in excess of real GDP, you're still increasing that delta, right? Right. So then the question becomes, okay, well, what really impacts real GDP? And so then what I did is I looked at a chart of government spending as a percentage of uh, GDP, and going back to that first time frame, that seventy to nineteen hundred, when we had three hundred percent, the the most I could find. The uh, government spending was about 8%, mm-hmm. about 8 And then what happened is, as you know, you know, we took a, a significant notch up in World War I. Mm-hmm. But then by the time we got to 1930, then we come out with a new deal. And then we go to uh, World War II. Now, I would argue that, that the new deal, you know, that really wasn't funded by the, the Federal Reserve. So we would have had that you know, pretty much regardless. Um, but then once we get up, we take that time frame, you know, from let's call it 30 to 60, we see that we have a significant increase in the 1930s in government spending. And then in the 1940s, same thing. So what I found is is right about that time when we, we never had deflation again, you know, that, that kind of paradigm shift in the late 1930s, or call it 1940, was when government spending went to about 20%. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not here to say that that's the magic number. <clears throat> Obviously, there's just limitless variables. But I think that that could be key here. Mm-hmm. And so if you're to assume that, you know, even under a strict gold standard that we had with, uh, uh, with uh, free banking, in the 1800s, we still get a 400% M2. So if you consider that that is um, maybe not something that would be a constant, but it's definitely possible, then you combine that with 20 plus 
percent government spending as a percent of GDP, then you create this environment with even a fixed base layer, you still most likely, or a probability would be far above zero, that you would still have consumer price inflation. The consumer price inflation, we are trying to get rid of all of us collectively, you mm-hmm. know, as a group of people that want to want what's best for the poor and middle class. And so then that's what kind of leads me to the conclusion that, wait a minute here, sound money is definitely desirable. But if we're putting 100% of our energy on this as though that's a panacea, that's a big, big, big mistake. Mm -hmm. And if I have to allocate 100% of my, you know, if I've got 24 hours in a day, and so I've got, okay, 100% of my mental bandwidth. You know, if I really want to move the needle as far as our shared objectives, for me, I come to the conclusion that it, it that it's more beneficial for me to allocate 90% of my time and energy to trying to persuade people that we need small government, we need low taxation, as and then 10% saying that, hey, sound money is definitely beneficial, definitely desirable. As opposed to what a lot of people would do is they allocate 90% of their time and energy saying, well, sound money, sound money, sound money, sound money, sound money, Mm -hmm. because we get sound money, then everything else just falls into place. And again, especially when you look at the amount of government spending that we have today, just as a result of taxation, just to forget the deficits, forget the deficits just as a result of taxation, I, I think you've got to come to the conclusion that um, a society, the society, even with a fixed base layer, if they favor big government, you're going to get big government because mm. uh, people just vote free stuff, you know? And I think that the, the overriding theme in what I see when I study history is it's just the same thing. It's like this cycle that we can't get out of as human beings where uh, uh, hard times create strong men and strong men create good times. Good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. Mm -hmm. It's just over and over and over and over again. And so my, I, I, I truly believe that right now we're in a, a, a period of, of kind of weak men, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I think that we now have the internet and we now have a lot of tools that we didn't have before. And I can either sit here and just wave the white flag and say, oh, we're all doomed and we're just going to have to go through this cycle, fourth turning, whatever you want to call it. Or I can get out there and try to pound the table for small government with the help of the internet and uh, allocate as much of my mental bandwidth as I can towards that to try to impact positive change. Mm. But that's really my message, you know, is that I think that as a collective group, we're going to be uh, a lot more successful in uh, achieving our objectives if we allocate 90% of our time to persuading people uh, the benefits of small government instead of trying to persuade them that sound money is the uh, way to get to that small government 
type of environment that uh, we're trying to strive for. I think that's kind of, we can riff on that, but that's kind of my main message. Yeah, no, that's really well said. And again, to reiterate, we're basically saying we have the same ends in mind. The ends being smaller government, less government interference in the market process. Deflation. And the market and, process and, and, is what gives lower us... consumer prices as a result of economic productivity. Yes, exactly. So the market, the more uninhibited the market process is, the more consumer price deflation it will create, right? Through trade, innovation, uh, just trade and innovation, basically. More high intensity, higher yeah. intensity trade, more innovation gives you lower prices. Government intervention is opposite to that, right? That's actually interfering with a market process, tends to be, tends to create consumer price inflation. So the end in mind is to minimize government interference in the market process as much as possible, where we're, uh, I guess, exploring is what are the appropriate, what's the appropriate allocation of mental energy towards the means to achieve that end, right? Is it all sound money? Yep. Is it all advocating for uh, education or, or um, persuasion, let's say, uh, in the minds of people about small government? Or is it a mix? You know, and to what extent is it a mix? So in all of that that you said, you did a great job of hitting on a number of things we that I have listed here that we probably agree upon. Um, inflating currency supplies cannot create wealth. So debasement does not create any new equipment, factories. Nothing of that sort, right? You're, you're, it's just redistributing wealth. It's not creating any new wealth. So I think- that's that's interesting. So now I, I I don't have a lot of data. Now, all the stuff that I said, just for your listeners, I've got a, tons and tons and tons of data to back that up. But now we're talking more about a thought experiment, which I think is, is really fascinating. So I tried to go back to that time frame that first one from 1870 to 1900, where we had 45% deflation. Mm-hmm. And I tried to, to to think about just get way outside of the box. And, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong or anything like that. I'm just sharing a thought experiment. And I'd love your opinion on this. But I thought to myself, if we would have had full reserve, instead of free banking, which was fractional reserve back then, would we have had as much deflation? Would we have had less deflation? So here's where I'm I'm going with that. And I'm not saying that we would have. But I thought, okay, if you're, if you are a widget maker, you're creating goods and services. If you can access capital, at a lower rate, although it may create the boom bust cycle, theoretically, we're going to have more goods and services created. And therefore, it would likely bring down prices. You know, another thing that I was- I would disagree with that, but I'll let you go ahead and finish. I I could tell you why after. Yeah, I was thinking about fracking. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, I think we can all agree that the Fed had interest rates artificially low from let's say 2009 to whatever uh 2020 or, or 2018 whenever they started raising rates again and during that time we had the fracking boom 
Well, we know what fracking did to the price of oil. It brought it way, way, way down. And that led to less, most likely, less inflation than we otherwise would have had. Mm-hmm. But we never would have had fracking if interest rates would have been 10 or 12%, right? If the 10 year, as an example, never would have got below 10%, we probably wouldn't have had that fracking boom. Can you tell so, me? And I'm not saying. Parse that one for me. What is it about yeah, so, the interest rates that led to fracking? Well, with with when you had zero, basically free money, uh, people it incentivizes them to go further and further out the risk curve. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my argument, and and this this is a complete hypothetical here, that, that if uh, interest rates, let's say the ten year, because you've got pools of money. You know, are they going to take that billion dollars and chase fracking, which is is risky, mm-hmm. when they could just get ten percent on a ten year treasury? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the answer is probably no. So, uh, assuming that they would have chosen to buy that ten year treasury, or the hurdle rate was just too high, when you look at the risk reward uh, for these frackers to get funded we most likely would not have had that additional oil come into the market and therefore bring the price down. And therefore, you know, that's an input cost to so many goods and services that that likely brought down the price. Now we still had inflation, of course, but we probably would have had higher inflation if it wasn't for the the quote unquote cheap money uh, to get these frackers to bring that oil out of the ground. Right. And so, so and, and I'm not saying on net balance, it was beneficial. That's not what I'm saying. I'm no. only using that as an example of how we we produced or potentially produced a lower rate of inflation as a result of uh, extremely low interest rates. So we take that back to our original example, 1870 to 1900. And uh, let's just assume that with full reserve banking, interest rates would have been higher, mm-hmm. right? Um, so because banks, you know, if, if, if they can't, uh, if they can't do that fractional reserve, they're going to try to make their money somehow. Mm-hmm. And so with full reserve, let's say interest rates would have gone higher, and then there would have been less capital created or less currency units that's at the end of the day was purchasing power, less currency units created to give to businesses to create more goods and services that led to that 45% deflation that we saw. Mm-hmm. So again, I want to be very clear. I am not saying that uh, that the deflation would have been less with full reserve banking. I'm saying it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very interesting debate for people that are probably a lot smarter uh, than I am. yeah um okay i i want to continue well let me speak to that real quick then i want to get to this things we probably agree upon the only reason i disagreed with what you said there was because the widget maker getting access to cheap credit although that means the that particular widget maker can produce more widgets more goods and services the flip side of that transactions not taken into account because if there's a central bank in place that's artificially lowering interest rates 
then they're basically applying a tax to dollar savers. So the savings of someone saving in dollars, if we're talking about dollars in this case, is then being compromised to benefit the expansion of the widget maker's capacity, productive capacity. So there's yeah, this, this is great unseen, point. There's this unseen consequence there that um, this 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 feels like another flavor of that argument that currency debasement can drive innovation. And I don't completely disagree because you're right; it does push producers further out along the risk curve. So if you're doing riskier things, right, risk and reward go hand in hand. Maybe you stumble across a fracking every now and then, and then you know an inflationary currency environment. Um, in that case, you could say there was a, a contributory factor from currency debasement to the productivity unlocked through fracking or, or some other innovation. That's a that's a yeah, but that's a possible argument. If we go back to to that, where you're saying that the creation of goods, additional goods and services, and keep in mind at the end of the 1800, you know, that's without a central bank. Yeah. I'm just assuming we'd have lower interest rates with uh, fractional reserve. Or free yes. banking than we would have had with full reserve, which we, so you're, which you're, you, as you said earlier, may or may not be the case. It depends. It, on what, I'm just, that's yeah. just a, that's just a yeah. thought experiment that I think is is interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, once we kind of get past, you know, how beneficial is sound money, then start looking toward the future and say, okay, now we've had the sound money discussion. Now let's have a discussion about Bitcoin specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Base money. yeah. And then, then how then how would that work? You know, and then what is best? Is it full reserve or is it fractional reserve? Mm. I think that that's that's the conversation is is more, uh, you know, in that that bucket. Yeah. But um, just before we shelf that for the moment, I, I think that what you're saying is that if we would have lower rates, yes, that would have pro produced more goods and services. But that would have been at the cost of the saver, because that saver, instead of getting a 5% interest rate, only would now be getting, let's say, a 3% interest rate, something right. like that. Yeah. But I would argue that there'd also be an additional benefit to the saver from the standpoint of if we had more goods and services, then that decreases the price. Uh, therefore, the real interest rate might be the same. You know, because let's just assume you go from a 5% interest rate as a saver down to a 3%. But instead of, uh, let's say, 1% deflation, you get 2% or 3% deflation as a result of there being more goods and services as a result of that that uh, business having access to that uh, cheaper capital. And therefore, on net balance, the, the saver is uh, uh is is in a, in this, a similar position right yes. regardless of whether they're getting five percent nominal or three percent nominal because their real rate is the same assuming that prices go down with more goods and services via additional capital yes I would agree in principle in a perfect world that is possible um I would draw on the lesson from Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson here, where he talks about the, the case of the broken window, where yeah. you see a shop owner, some uh, vandal has thrown a stone through his window, and you think, oh, well, if you just only think one layer deep, well, the guy throwing the stone through the window has created work 
for the window repairman, right? So he's he's improved the economic, he's improved the economy, the GDP, right? He's created a job effectively. That's the seen consequence, but the unseen is the guy that's paying to have the window fixed is now $500 poorer or whatever it is, right? So what what you're not seeing is what he otherwise would have spent that $500 on, the saver in this case. So the although in a perfect world, you could be correct, right? Where the, the price decrease exactly offsets the interest rate the saver had to forego because there was cheap uh, credit afforded to the widget maker. Yeah, I think when you introduce this element of non-consensual exchange is when things get messy, right? It's kind of the problem with government is they they misallocate the capital because they're not earning it in consensual exchange. So I don't know, we could probably go down that philosophical economic rabbit hole, but in general, I would say that it's not, I would never say with a high degree of confidence that you could just debase currency and drive innovation and it would all come out in the wash, right? I actually think- Again, I want to make sure that we're talking, when we're talking about debasing currency, I'm not talking about the base layer. Uh, I'm, we could I'm, just say I'm artificially talking. lowering rates. That's, I would put that as almost indistinguishable. But, but would you, but would you, so if we go from full reserve to fractional reserve, even if we're using Bitcoin or gold or whatever as a base layer, would you, st and then as a result, we get more M2. Would you consider that debasing the currency? Well, devil's in the details, because what is the contractual relationship between depositors and the bank? If I know that, that, that that's, that's, you know, the great question, uh, assuming that the depositors are choosing that fractional reserve bank on their own free will and probably not as a result of the market because they're offering a higher interest rate. Exactly. Then I would say probably not because in that case, um, that's a consensual exchange, right? I'm taking certain yeah. risks, knowing you're going to lend out my capital, presumably to give me a yield of some kind. And if that trade goes bad, well, then that I was a, a knowing actor in that exchange versus if I sign terms that say you're going to hold my gold on demand and not yeah. lend it out. But then you do run a fractional reserve on it. That's a violation of contract. Yeah. So I don't want to go too far down that path. Yeah. But, you know, another fascinating <laughs> thought experiment is, is to try to think through if we could have full reserve banking mm -hmm. without state intervention. Because, well, because, as you know, from studying free banking, uh, that's what we chose. You know, we had the option uh, back in the 1800s yeah. for full reserve or, or fractional reserve. And and we chose fractional reserve. That well, wasn't both, right? There were both operations at the time, I think. There were full and fractional reserves. But, but okay. I, I think the vast majority was uh, was fractional reserve. Yes. And I would assume because they just won out in the free market because they offered uh, a higher Only interest rate. Yield. People like, hey, you know, I, I trust them. And well, even though they're going to lend my money, they're going to they're gonna, uh, lend out a, more than they have on reserve. I'm good with it. This is but, a human frailty that continues to the present day, right? This just happened with Celsius and all these other yeah, right. issues, right? It's like people lured <laughs> in by the yeah. yield and then they get blindsided by the counterparty risk, basically. 
Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, I don't want to go down too far. Yeah, those are all good points. Sound money before we get into to, to Bitcoin as sound money, because I think those yes. two those are two completely separate yes. ideas. So another thing, all right, that you said in the the beginning there, that's a thing we obviously agree on. Bitcoin does not fix consumer price inflation, but it does fix if it succeeded. Now we're not saying that it definitely succeeds, but if Bitcoin succeeded, we on a Bitcoin standard, that does fix M two to some, at least to the extent that the the, the central bank arbitrarily uh, contributes to the expansion of M2, either directly through the buying of treasuries or through the the backstopping of the commercial banking system. See, this is where we, we might have a disagreement. And I'm, uh, I don't believe the Fed contributes to a significant degree to m2 can we do central um, banking more generally than just the fed because my concern here is that if we just zero in on the american experiment over the past 100 years with the fed that we might be looking at an anomaly to some extent or if you if you consider general central banking more generally um i think it depends right as we talked about earlier weimar germany the central bank at that time was obviously contributing significantly to the expansion of m2 even though the Fed today may not be specifically. So it's very context dependent. Um, and I know you made a point on the difference between broad and narrow money on that topic, but I just wanted to try and keep the conversation about the concept of central banking itself versus a specific historical. Uh, yeah, the, the reason I keep defaulting back to the Fed is mm -hmm. because I that's where I've done 99% of my research. Yeah. So I understand how the 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 plumbing, if you will, works with the U.S. system, the Fed, the commercial banks. Now, how the plumbing works in Argentina, or how the plumbing works in uh, Venezuela, I, I I don't know. I don't know. I I I I would assume that they would have had to, or most likely would have had to have a direct mechanism uh, to create broad money or create m2 meaning the government mm -hmm. right where right now the, the government really doesn't have a right. direct mechanism for for that now you could argue that well with the federal reserve coming in and doing quantitative easing and all these things it's increasing m2 when you look yeah. at 2020 absolutely absolutely 100 but you make but a good again, the federal reserve act right now prohibits the federal reserve from directly creating m2 I believe, although yeah. when they were buying government bonds and things like this recently, it sort of it starts to blur the line. It does because it depends on who, who they're buying from. Yes. If they buy from a non-bank entity, then it's increasing M2. If they're buying from a bank, then it's not. So yeah. it, again, the devil's in the details. But even if we go back to 2007, right? I, I keep going back to that era because it was prior to QE. We still had... Uh, Robert, with just the, the the revenue that the federal government was collecting in taxes and then spending, plus local and state, we're still at like thirty five plus percent. Yes, and 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 so even if you want to say that, well, George, now we're in this new environment uh, where the, the you know the Fed is monetizing so much of the U.S. debt that it's definitely impacting M two money supply. 
you know, I'll give you that in certain circumstances, but, but I don't think that's what we should be focusing on because we don't need that to get government spending to 35% of GDP, which in, in my opinion, once we're over 20, we're in the serious danger zone. You know, ideally we'd be sub 10. (laughs) This is a, this is a point we almost certainly agree upon then. As government spending as a percentage of GDP increases, real GDP declines. Yes, it's That's, just it's just will sound or would sound money based on the, right. the data that we have at our disposal, at least for the United States. How does sound money impact? Sound money have impacted the size of government? Uh, if so, to what degree? That, that's really what we're talking about. My argument is that if you look at you know the whole from 1913 to 2020, it would not have impacted it to a significant degree. Right. So that's a real because I know that's central to your argument, and that's a great. Uh, that's in. There's a high degree of consistency between that notion that government spending as a percentage of GDP going up means real GDP is coming down. That's. Uh, that's an Austrian economic axiom, frankly, right? Theft yeah. reduces productivity. Now we didn't, I didn't say this one earlier, but uh, it is my opinion that taxation is theft. It's technically extortion. Uh, I would say currency debasement is a form of taxation. So as we said at the top of the show, all government revenues are either taxation or currency debasement. Um, all government revenues are theft. Essentially, is a, a strong point that I try to revisit over and over. Yeah, That's it's just who's creating the theft? Because with yeah. the taxation, they're definitely creating the theft. Yes. Right. Uh, but with with M two, you know, if you're if you're defining that as uh, debasement, mm-hmm. uh, then you could argue, I think, that it's a a, a, a tandem relationship. Between the banking system, which again, in my opinion, is the sun. Yeah. They're the ones that are really in control of the money supply. They're the ones that are really in control, quote unquote, of the dollar, right? And the right. Fed is just kind of following them, just uh, you know, trying to support them in any way they can. Uh, and so, but then it goes back to the people. I, I think really it's 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 a relationship between the M2 growth and the people voting for more and more and more government spending and higher and higher taxes. Right, right. right. So, okay. Because that's what drives the government spending to a point, in my opinion, where even with the same amount of M2 that we saw in the late 1800s, instead of getting 45% deflation, we're getting 120% inflation. Right. Okay. Now, I think I'm picking up on something here, and I think it's really good. You're making a great point. Uh, zeroing in on the imperfections of human nature, right? Where we talked about earlier in a free banking standard, a lot of consumers chose fractional reserve banking because yeah. they were in the argument. And I'm sorry to cut you off, Robert, but the argument I always get on Twitter there is that and I'm probably jumping ahead to the next conversation, but uh, is is saying, well, that wouldn't happen under a Bitcoin standard because we wouldn't need the banking system. And I'm like, that that doesn't really apply because people that chose fiduciaries, mm-hmm. right, they chose fractional re- uh, reserve fiduciaries, which whether you've got gold, Bitcoin, even if you can store that in the back of your pocket, assuming we still have fiduciaries, people in the 1800s at least chose fiduciaries that would pay them a higher rate of interest. 
even with a little more risk. And you could say, well, George, that wouldn't be applicable because we'd have deflation. So people would be making so much money or so much, they'd be increasing their purchasing power to such a significant degree with consumer price deflation that they wouldn't be out there trying to find the highest interest rate they can get by having to take that additional risk with a fiduciary that's using fractional reserve. And the but truth is point out, in the 1800s, we had deflation. Mm-hmm. So even with that, people still chose the 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 higher uh, the higher risk there. So this is where I think you're making, and this is just dawning on me now as we're talking about it. But you're making a great point, just on the fallibility of people, right? Like it's, yeah, you can tempt people into a fractional reserve agreement through, uh, you know, uh, it's salesmanship on one end of the spectrum, maybe it's con artistry on another end of the spectrum, but you're basically selling people on the idea of getting some yield, right? Getting something for nothing. And then here, sign the dotted line. That's a fractional reserve agreement. Maybe they don't even understand what that means. They don't understand the counterparty risk they're taking, but there is this temptation into a less uh, beneficial contractual relationship. This seems to be a similar dynamic to people voting for big government, which is another point that you're making, right? They're being promised free stuff, right? Vote for me and you get whatever welfare package or whatever it may be. Um, this I agree with very strongly, right? People are imperfect. We There are always people trying to sell people on things and there's there are gullible people that will accept that. I mean, the past couple of years in crypto have proven that repeatedly. Right. People keep getting even after each one of these crypto exchanges, there's a new one pops up promising yield, (laughs) draws in a new set of depositors. They get wiped out. The cycle repeats. I mean, it's just it's a a tale as old as time almost. Um, And that's why I always say that's why I always say that, that Bitcoin fixes this, but it doesn't fix people. And, uh, you know, another thing I always say, perfect money controlled by imperfect human Mm -hmm. beings will still be imperfect at the end of the day. So let's, I want, that's, you, you keep getting me on these. That's the next point I want to hit on, but I want to finish this government spending as a percentage of GDP increasing leads to a decline in real GDP, which is another way mm-hmm. of saying theft reduces productivity, which is- Which an increases the probability of consumer price inflation. Which increase yes, that cost- of theft is basically being externalized and that is consumer price inflation. So I would just to, to give one historical example here, when I look at 2021 for the U S government, U S government generated about $4 trillion in direct tax receipts. And there was also uh, an expansion of M2 of roughly $4 trillion might be more on the order of yep. like three and a half at that time. So, and I know 2021 would be perhaps somewhat of an, an anomalous year, given it was COVID and all that. Um, but roughly that would represent a 50-50 revenue mix for the U.S. government in taxation, you know, $4 trillion taxation and $4 trillion M2 expansion or debasement. Mm-hmm. So... I think this is just a good setup for what I would like to talk about later, which are the actual um, the incentives underpinning Bitcoin and how they contribute to the shrinking of government. If you just looked at that year on a Bitcoin standard, where the government half the government's revenue is taxation, the other half is coming through inflation or debasement. In a Bitcoin standard world, half of that revenue profile goes away 
for the U.S. government in 2021. Right. Right. So, yeah, but my point there, and that's a great point, and I I totally acknowledge that. I don't know if it's the end of 2020 or beginning of 2021, but we had an increase of M2, but like 25 percent, 25 percent. You know that 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 would not have happened without the Fed doing so much quantitative easing and more, more specifically buying from the, the uh, non-bank entities, right? Yes. There's a lot of contributing factors, yes. but that was definitely one. So the argument that, well, George, we wouldn't have had 2020 or 2021 without the Fed. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. I don't think that's debatable, but my point is even without that, going back to 2007, where I don't think the Fed was really, in the game much at all, you know, and I think that's, that's, I think I can prove that with documents, you know, from the Fed that I read that we discussed prior to recording that, um, you know, we can go over again if you want. But um, it, my point is, even then we were at 35 plus percent of government spending as a percentage of GDP, right. which is dangerous. So you're right to go from, let's say, 40 percent in 2019 to where we are today, who knows, 50 percent. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a result, yes. or was uh, the Fed contributed to that? Let's say yes. absolutely. But your point's well taken point too. Is, there was yeah, you, long, there was a long period of time where central banking people didn't know the names of central bankers, right? It just wasn't they weren't as big of a uh, they didn't contribute as much to economic conditions, frankly, as yeah. Whereas the the world today, right? We hang on their every word. We're constantly looking at monetary policy. The adage "Don't fight the Fed." They become more of a uh, an actor, I guess, on the on the economic landscape than it's they. All, in my opinion, it's all just psychological. It's all psychological. You know, one thing we were talking about that that your audience might find interesting is between for first of all for, for bankers. You know, I'm sure a lot of people are screaming right now that uh, we don't know what we're talking about because the Fed controls the amount of bank reserves and that controls bank lending because it expands the size of the, uh, or the balance sheet capacity, let's yes. say for the commercial banks. Or if the Fed is lowering rates, then that's gonna increase more demand for yeah. loans if they're doing quantitative easing, especially. Or and that in and of itself is gonna create more M2. And you know this is a great argument, but let, let's go back first and foremost and look at uh, 1980, because there was about 40 billion of bank reserves. I think we talked about uh, that staying at 40 billion up until 2007, but yet we had an increase of M2 from 1.5 roughly uh, to 7.5. So that in this whole time, we had a 10% reserve requirement. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. where's your ten percent reserve? So, what happened? And I don't know that we discussed this um, after recording, but during the nineteen nineties, uh, they the the banks themselves were like, okay, we got this stupid reserve requirement. How do we get around it? They started these sweep accounts, mm-hmm. is what they were calling them. So, what the they they got around the regulation by uh, taking the deposits at five p.m. and sweeping them into like a a money market account or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning, sweeping them back to the deposit accounts to where people would have access uh, to them again. And this got around the rule because the the Fed only had the reserve requirements for the actual deposits. 
Mm-hmm. So then they could go ahead and expand M2 uh, up to infinity and beyond, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they still adhere to the, you know, the strict uh, regulations. And then another thing that I found fascinating is, uh, you know, in this 2014 paper from the Bank of England, and I'd strongly suggest your your viewers read that. I've read it more times than I'd like to admit uh, they come out with this this concept. They say what well, they don't the banking or the uh, central bank doesn't really create reserves. They don't create reserve first and then bank lend around those reserves. And this is something that Bob Murphy, uh, who's fantastic, uh, actually wrote about in uh, Money Mechanics. I think was a paper that he did. And uh, th- so I've I've thought about that a lot. But I was researching this paper on open market operations in 1995. It was a specific summary from the Federal Reserve, a 17-page summary. And what I really found fascinating is they discussed this concept very in very great detail as far as the open market operations not really uh, revolving around what the Fed wants or even really interest rates. But what they were doing is they were just looking at the amount of reserves that were required as a result of bank lending and then creating that many reserves. So let's just say that, um, you know, yesterday banks did all this additional lending. So they're getting close to that 10% reserve requirement. Well, the New York Fed would come in and take a look at this and say, oh, oh, shoot. We, we're, they're, they're getting close. So now we're going to go ahead and buy some treasuries just to give them a few more reserves mm-hmm. so they can go ahead and, and be within our regulation. So effectively, what you had is the banking system creating as much money as they wanted to create. There was no constraint. Uh, well, I'm not going to say no constraint, yeah. but they're, they're, they're definitely the Fed wasn't constraining them. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And the reserve requirement was definitely not constraining them. Right. So the, the, the point, just because I wanted to kind of um, throw that out there for people, because I know uh, people have this idea that the Fed controls M2 money supply through the amount of bank reserves. And it, it's, it's just it just absolutely is not true. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now, let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. 
By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Another thing that I'd, I'd throw out there to your audience they might find interesting is... Um, I think my thinking really started to improve once I I started to understand that the the banks themselves can settle without the Fed's balance sheet. Mm. They don't need the Fed's balance sheet. So as an example, Robert, if you own a bank and you have two customers and you transfer a deposit from one customer to the other other customer, that's just simply subtracting a hundred dollars, let's say, and then adding a hundred dollars. So your balance sheet doesn't change at all. Mm -hmm. But if you transfer that one hundred dollars to, um, uh, or if one of your customers says, "Hey, Robert, I want you to transfer a hundred dollars to one of my friends that's at a different bank," what you're doing is you're sending them a liability. Mm -hmm. So you have to offset that liability. So most people that, that kind of get into the weeds, they say, okay, well, they're going to offset that liability by transferring them the equivalent bank reserves. So then you're transferring them a liability and you're also transferring them an asset. And this asset, bank reserve, is on the Fed's balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So that settlement process involves the Fed. And this is true. So a lot of, especially domestically, a lot of, and especially after QE, a lot of transactions are settled that way. But people forget that you can settle without the Fed's balance sheet. So, as an example, uh, you send me, I'm a, a different bank, $100. And instead of sending me something where we'd have to settle on the Fed's balance sheet, all you, and let's just assume that I have an account with you, a checking account, and you have an account with me. 
Well, all you do is add a hundred dollars to my account. Right. Interbank liabilities, right? Yeah. It, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, a corresponding banking arrangement, a, a Nostro Vostro account, or, you know, whatever the technical term is. I just, you, on my whiteboard, just sit there and do yeah. these T things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, I can sit there and, and credit you as much as I want. And mm-hmm. we can settle on our balance sheet. We don't even need the Fed to settle. Right. So then what you, the conclusion you come to is, okay, well then what's this constraint on the banks? Mm-hmm. The, the answer is there is none. Mm-hmm. The only constraint they have is the confidence that they're going to get paid back. Right. hundred percent. And the way I say this in my videos a lot is the only constraint is counterparty risk. So the, you can sit there and say Basel three and all these. And yeah, I get it. I, I get it. That, that is definitely a, a an impediment, let's say, mm-hmm. but I would argue that especially, you know, in the shadows, in the euro dollar system, if you want to look at it that way, I think it's the the probability is extremely high that these banks have figured out a way around that as well. Just like they found a way around the reserve requirements it, with all these sweep accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, I've actually kind of modeled it out and, and shown how they can get around that whiteboard, but we don't need to go into it here. But my, my big point there is that even if you eliminate the Fed, even if you eliminate bank reserves, for heaven's sakes, then you just got the euro dollar system. And we know darn well that they can they can create almost limitless amounts of money if there is productive demand for that money. And if they have the confidence that they're going to be paid back. Right. So well, the, the Fed is not a, a constraint in that in that world at all. And I think once people uh, kind of divorce themselves from that idea, and again, it goes back to the banking system being the sun and not the Fed, I think they have they might have a, a kind of a paradigm shift mm-hmm. where they're like, yeah, and and start to um, maybe see the possibility of. Uh, the Fed almost being irrelevant. Well, um, let's let's frame it this way. And I, I hear you're making a lot of good points. And I think I'm really starting to see more of the nuance in your thinking. It's probably what get lo- gets lost on Twitter too, right? It's hard to have nuance. Yeah, because it's ambition politics. It gets really so, frustrating there because um, I'm trying, and everyone accuses me of you know the engagement or whatever. All no, these no, crazy no. Things you're dealing in good true. faith, and I know you're a deep thinker and a nuanced thinker. So I, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just it's hard to communicate that. Um, in, but, in 140 okay. characters. 100%. The 2021 uh, example we looked at earlier, where U.S. government had 50% of its revenue from taxation, 50% from debasement. Yep. Uh, you would at least agree in that world that well, the well, Fed is becoming more a larger Earth in that analogy, right? In relationship to the sun, that in, yes. in a year where you're debasing. 50% of the revenues are coming from debasement. Obviously, the central bank is much more relevant in that yes. year. Okay. So Absolutely. it's not that the sun, I hear the sun and earth analogy, and it does hold, but I just want to make the point that it can change, right? If there is a, a lot of Absolutely. debasement occurring. And, I, and I, I'd say going back to World War II, yeah, probably another good example of that, uh, World War One. Yeah. another good example. I'm just World saying in aggregate total, I think it's maybe a drop in the bucket's not the right word. Yeah. But um but, but it's it's that idea that, that it hasn't contributed 
to a significant degree, especially if you consider that significant degree uh, 20% or above. Yes. And yes. I'm referring specifically to government spending as a percent of GDP. Got it. And the other good point you make here is the Fed does not control M2 specifically through the reserve ratio because they're basically they were backing into this reserve ratio, right? Yeah. The commercial banking system was running, cr creating new money in the form of credit and loans. And then the Fed would come in and say, oh, well, we need reserves of 10% of that. So they would just yeah. generate them out of thin air. Um, yeah. So that that I agree with. The Fed is not controlling M2. However, the Fed's ability to create bank reserves from nothing, ex nihilio or whatever that term is, is the problem, right? In a no. real, well, that is, it has to be some problem. Because um, would, well, would, it, would it, the banks be doing that absent the implicit backstop backing of the Fed in that situation? Here's so this is I'm glad you brought this up because I know a lot of people say, well, George, you're the guy that uh, you know wears the in the Fed hat and whatnot. You're the guy that has this FOIA that, request for Fed right now, you know, with Robert Barnes and all these things. So aren't you just contradicting yourself? And uh, so. He, my position is that we should definitely, definitely end the Fed, but their cardinal sin isn't necessarily M2, as we've discussed here. Um, I think their cardinal sin is manipulating the front end of the curve, more specifically overnight rates, mm -hmm. and also uh, bailouts. Mm -hmm. Bailouts, I think it's huge because this moral hazard mm -hmm. that it creates and these distortions. So one of the thought experiments that you and I were discussing is going back to the 1990s and just asking yourself if the Fed, and I know they didn't directly bail out long-term capital management, but they kind of you know, were, were a key component. And then obviously they uh, contributed to the, the bailouts and the, with the government with um, 2008. So if we would not have had those bailouts, if we would have just let things fail, this Schumpeter's creative destruction, but the Fed would have done quantitative easing. And let's say they wouldn't have done the quantitative easing by buying the, you know, all the bad uh, mortgage-backed securities off the Fed's balance or off the uh, bank's balance sheets, but they just would have went into the market and done like the QE2-3, where they're just trying, um, they didn't do a very good job, but they're trying to just lower the long end of the curve to bring down interest rates, you know, in the real economy or something like that. Um, you know, just would we have had the stock market triple or whatever it was hmm. um, from, let's say, 2009 to uh, 2019 or uh, 2021? And I don't know that we would have. I don't know that we would have because I don't know that people would have continued to go that far out the risk curve uh -huh. if they would not have known that there was an explicit backstop mm -hmm. so you can do all the qe you want and it's not you're just pushing on a string because as we talked earlier if it is true that the banks can settle without the fed and the fed isn't the the the, the center of the solar system then you know the banks can they don't need qe to create their, their balance sheet is not constrained by bank reserves, mm -hmm. you know, bottom line. So they can uh, go out and do whatever they would have done without the QE. 
So what was the real impact there? Why did we see the stock market triple or you know whatever it did during that time frame? And I think it's it's more so a result of the Fed bailout. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to talk about one of the, the 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 main benefits of sound money or maybe a Bitcoin standard, I think that's right at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I was mentioning was their manipulation of the overnight rate. And a lot of people say, well, the Fed you know, has kept interest rates artificially low. There are artificially low interest rates, artificially low interest rates. And I would agree over the last, you know, let's say from 2008 or nine or so, we've definitely had artificially low interest rates mm-hmm. and talk about the overnight Fed funds. But before that, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I can point out times in, in history where the Fed funds rate might have been too high. It might have been higher than the market rate. Uh, most people assume that we always have artificially low interest rates because uh, a lot of times the Fed funds rate is negative in real terms. Mm-hmm. But if you go back and look at well, the 1800s, we had negative real interest rates all the time, all the time. And it, it, it so it wasn't, um, I don't know that you can say that because we have negative real rates that the interest rates are artificially low. I, I don't think that in and of itself. The is... negative real rates in the 1800s, that's when, what, what what is the, is that when CPI is above the market interest rate? Yeah. Is that what you're calling negative real rate? Yeah, the... so let and I apologize there because I'm kind of comparing apples to oranges, but I think it's a, a close enough comparison. So when I'm talking about interest rates in the uh, uh, 1800s. The, the chart that I have shows the one year or the equivalent of the one year treasury. Yeah. So, and then they're comparing that to CPI. Got it. And so you see that, uh, you know, there's years where the CPI was uh, whatever, uh, eight, nine, 10%. And the one year market rate, no Fed involved here at all. uh, The market rate was still uh, 4%. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you would see, you know, that the, the heartbeat, uh, yeah. like we talked about earlier. Uh, so and over time, you know, you had that deflation. So even at 4%, if you had periods of higher inflation, negative real rates, you would still be compensated and you would still increase your purchasing power, which is probably why people were more than willing to buy them at mm-hmm. uh you know, three or 4%, whatever the going rate was, because they, you know, that goes back to, what is it? Irving Fisher, I believe, mm-hmm. came up with the equation for long-term rates, where it's just a, a combination of growth and future inflation expectations. Mm-hmm. And so that would make sense as to why you saw negative real rates back then with a market rate, because the future expectations were most likely deflationary, right. as hard as that is for right. us to kind of... Uh, you know, get our head around in in today's day and age. But but my my main point there is that the Fed's two cardinal sins and why they should be eliminated is because they're manipulating the overnight rate, which might not always be too low. It could no. be artificially too high. Um, but that that is um, you know the price of money for Evans, or they're 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 manipulating the price of money or a price that could lead to 
uh, other prices of money throughout the uh, real economy. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, that could impact the tenure, that could impact the whole entire curve. Right. Uh, although I think the market forces are much stronger at the long end, that's for sure. But it's distorting things, yes, right? And if you come and, and even if it distorts things to a small degree, just over a year, when you compound that distortion, right. yes, over a hundred years, right. now we're, we're we're talking about something that is incredibly significant. Absolutely. And I think those are the two of the Fed's cardinal sins. It's it's uh, manipulating the the uh, overnight rate and the bailouts. I agree with you. Largely, I would add, and I don't know if you put this under the Fed or not, but things like legal tender laws, capital controls, all the anti-competitive stuff that insulates the legal monopoly. I think all Absolutely. of that, that's bad. That's just all anti-capitalism. Absolutely. Uh, so I think we agree on a lot here. I guess the one last point of probable agreement would be free markets generate more wealth than central planning. I don't think there's a lot of debate about that. Uh, I would categorize central banking as central planning, as we just said, right? Yeah. So it's not, you're just not going to get the best solution from the central planning of money, just like you don't get the best solution from the central planning of anything. It's it's kind of yeah. obvious. Um, yeah, I just don't think they're centrally planning the uh, money supply or, yes. or M2. Right. Especially when you look at it globally. But they but they can expand, right? They can choose to become more involved, right? If the Fed wants to turn around and print $10 trillion tomorrow, right? Not to say that the Fed could or should or would, but if they did, they could expand their relevance very quickly, right? As but, let's, let's, but this is another interesting thing. I'm glad you brought this up. So when the Fed... Uh, let's say they spent ten trillion dollars, where they created ten trillion dollars worth of these oh, bank ten reserves. trillion dollars of treasuries. Treasuries. There you go. What are they doing? And now let's just forget, you know, whether they're buying from a non-bank or a bank, because that matters for M two. Yeah. Because they buy from a non-bank, then they're increasing M two. If they're buying from a bank, then they're not. But let, let's just um, for, forget that for a moment. Let's just look at the transaction. So what they're doing is they're trading a treasury for a bank reserve. And then people say, oh, my gosh, this is money printing. And, and what you hear on CNBC all the time is this is adding liquidity to the system. Mm -hmm. But what that does is that assumes that that bank reserve offers more liquidity than the treasury. And I would argue that especially for the banks, and the pension funds or the hedge funds that that treasury is actually more desirable mm -hmm. and could be more liquid mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> than the bank reserves themselves. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine like a hedge fund having a billion dollars in treasuries, right? And them saying to themselves, oh my gosh, Robert, we would love to buy stocks right now. In fact, we'd much prefer to have a billion dollars worth of stocks right now, but we can't because we're just stuck with these stupid treasuries. What are we gonna do? So now the stock market's not gonna go up because it's not gonna increase demand by us being out there and, and bidding up the prices. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, No hedge fund has ever said that. What they would do is they wouldn't sit there and wait 
for the Fed to buy those treasuries. Now, all of a sudden, the Fed buys the treasuries and like, all right, now we can go and buy those stocks that we've wanted to buy for the last five years. Of course not. What they do is they don't even have to sell the treasuries. All they'd have to do is go into repo mm-hmm. and be like, hey, give me a billion dollars. And you know we're going to keep these treasures on our balance sheet. Mm-hmm. We're just going to use them as collateral. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to go take that billion dollars and they're going to go in and buy the stocks that they want to buy. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a good argument for if the Fed is buying, let's say, from the average Joe and Jane. Mm-hmm. I think, yes, that would increase liquidity because the average Joe and Jane can't really use those treasuries like they could use cash in their bank account. Right. But pretty much every other, you know, uh, financial institution, for sure, mm-hmm. there that there there's a great argument that those treasuries are even more desirable and more liquid than the bank reserves themselves. So I don't know that, you know, if they did that 10 trillion, let's assume, in QE tomorrow, and they bought 10 trillion dollars worth of uh, treasuries from pension funds, hedge funds, uh, you know, JP Morgan, et cetera. I don't know that that does anything because you're just trading one liquid asset denominated in dollars for another liquid asset denominated in dollars. So let me be slightly more specific, I guess. I was suggesting that if the US government wanted to pass a $10 trillion spending package, Right. Then they now need to go generate from nothing ten trillion dollars in US treasuries and sell those to the Fed. The Fed then sells them dollars in exchange for those treasuries. And that would be uh obviously a, a significant increase to M2. So I, I'm I should have specified not buying the treasuries necessarily in the open in the open market, which wouldn't change things so much in terms of M2. But when you're creating new treasuries and selling them and the Fed's buying them, that would increase M2. So in that case, when you say, and you, I think you answered the question, what is money uh, in your, your conversation with Sailor? You said it's purchasing power, essentially, something like that, right? Something yeah, and I'd, I'd expand that too. I think it's, it's, it's well, money might not be purchasing power. It, it's purchasing power would be what it allows you to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that, if I really had to be specific, I, I'd, other than pieces of paper, I would, I would, I think my best answer would be it's just, um, it's just balance sheet. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's money is just, it's a bank's balance sheet. That's it. And and you, if you want to throw in base money. It's it's the Fed's balance sheet. It's just it's just that's all we're dealing with here. Are just it's just a network of balance sheets. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, yeah. So agreed. And you could say balance sheet is almost representative of purchasing power, right? That's what your net worth is. It's kind of your net um, assets, effectively the the fair market value of the organization, whatever it may be. If we could just simplify money as a container for this purchasing power, right? You get to put purchasing power in this little container and transact it with other people. In that transaction where the U.S. government creates $10 trillion in new treasuries, sells them to the Fed, the Fed is effectively lending 
the U.S. government the purchasing power uh, of dollar holders, right, or dollar savers, because they're diluting, they're they're introducing new dollars into circulation that is diluting the purchasing power of savers over time. So that's where this I is really interesting because the, the there's minutia there that I think is uh, is fascinating. So the the Fed technically can't buy directly from the treasury so mm -hmm. you're going to have the treasury sell to primary dealers or, or, or banks or just you know they're going to sell at, at a normal auction what was and the mechanism the in maybe 2020 2021 where they i mean because it was u.s government effectively created this four trillion dollars of liquidity my understanding was they just sold treasuries to the fed but i think no saying no, here no. there's a little bit of a difference no, they no, they didn't do that. They, it it might have, you know, before the ink was dry, it might have been on the Fed's balance sheet. <laughs> right. Mechanically yeah. it worked out. But, Maybe not legally. Yeah, but 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 the, the point I want to make here is we 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 just said how if the Fed buys from a bank, then it's not increasing M2. Because uh, well, if they're buying treasuries that already problem. exist, they're buying treasuries that already well, they're always going to buy treasuries that already exist. But what's fascinating there is that when a commercial bank, just forget the Fed for a moment, when a commercial bank buys a treasury from Janet Yellen, uh, what you're talking about is that bank reserve, assuming they're using bank reserves, that's going to go from JP Morgan's balance sheet down to the TGA, the Treasury General Account, which is just a, a liability of the Fed. That's just it goes from JP Morgan's uh, account at the Fed down to Janet Yellen's account or the Treasury's account. So the only thing that's happened in this transaction is bank reserves have gone from one account on the Fed's balance sheet down to another. There's been zero impact on M2, none. But what happens is when Janet Yellen sends out that stimmy check, now all of a sudden we've increased M2 money supply mm -hmm. because that initial treasury was purchased by a bank using something other than M2. So now let's look at if the average Joe does it, or what I always say, a non-bank entity in the real economy. If they're doing it, then what's happening is when they're buying that treasury from Janet Yellen, the bank reserves will go down uh, from JP Morgan's account. Let's say that's where the average Joe banks with down to the TGA, but M2 will decrease because the average Joe is using M2 or uh, the liability of the commercial bank uh, balance sheet. They're using that to pay for the treasury. So the M2 goes down, the reserves go from JP Morgan's account down to the TGA. Then Janet Yellen spends that stimmy check. It goes right back out into the economy. It increases M2, but it only fills the gap that was created by the transaction to begin with. Mm -hmm. See, that that's really the key difference there. So then once we understand that when a bank buys from the treasury and Janet Yellen spends, they are going to increase M2, even if the Fed's not involved. Mm -hmm. When a non-bank buys from the Fed, and then Janet Yellen spends, it's going to be a net wash 
mm-hmm. to the currency units chasing goods and services. So once we get that, then we let over the Fed doing quantitative easing. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, now that, um, let's just say it's a 50-50. So with this 50% purchase from the banks, that's increased M2. And this 50% purchase from the non-banks, that has not. Mm-hmm. So then the Fed comes in and let's say they uh, buy, tre- when they're doing quantitative easing now, see, mm-hmm. now they're buying, let's say specifically from the banks and that doesn't impact M2, but the original transaction did. Mm-hmm. Or they're buying from the non-banks where they are increasing M2, but the original transaction did not. Mm-hmm. See, so I don't want to confuse your 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 viewers there, but for me, that that's a really fascinating way that the plumbing works. And so if you're trying to figure out the impact of XYZ on M2, I think you've got to consider it. Uh, you've got to consider that level of nuance. Okay. So in 2021, do you know what the actual mechanics were that facilitated that $4 trillion expansion of M2? Is it the process you just described? Partially. So I, I and I'm just going off a paper that I read a few weeks ago uh, from the Federal Reserve on, on what their explanation is let's say Mm -hmm. so there's two main components that they uh attributed this 25 percent increase in m2 number one was the fed when they did quantitative easing they bought the majority of the treasuries or mortgage-backed securities from the non-bank sector okay so that like we were saying that's going to directly increase m2 money supply because you're trading treasuries for commercial bank liabilities now, what in other words, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I may have missed this. And I thought you were saying that would is that would have made it a wash when they're buying from non. No, that, that's without the Fed. That's without, without the Fed. Okay. So it's just like if, if Robert, if it, let's say you buy a treasury for a thousand bucks, your account with Wells Fargo, let's say, goes down by a thousand bucks. But then when Janet Yellen gives me a stimmy check for a thousand bucks, I deposit it in Bank of America. Mm-hmm. So with your transaction, M2 goes down. With mine, it goes up. Mm-hmm. So it's a net wash. But then what happens is uh, the Fed comes in and says, hey, Robert, I want to buy that. Uh, I want to buy a, a, a treasury from you or something, that treasury that you bought from Janet Yellen. Then you sell that. Now, I've got the $1,000 or the 100 bucks or whatever we said in my bank account. But now you just sold that to the Fed. So the bank increases your checking account by the thousand bucks. Another two thousand dollars where mm-hmm. we started with one thousand in M2. You see? So, so if it's just if it's just if, if the Fed isn't doing quantitative easing, mm-hmm. then that M2 isn't increasing. But if the Fed comes in and does M2 uh, uh quantitative easing, excuse me, with a non-bank entity, mm-hmm. then on net balance, M2 is going to increase. Now with the caveat that bank lending is is uh, with the caveat that there's not a additional amount of loans being paid off relative to loans being created sure. because that's going to impact M2, right? right? Um, we're just assuming that that's for a moment a constant with this, uh, you know, with this hypothetical. 
Got it. So, so uh, it was quantitative easing in 2021 that created the $4 trillion expansion in M2. And, it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that also doesn't take into account the money multiplier effect, right? Once those new dollars come into circulation, they tend to get relent. And it, 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 $1 added by the Fed into M2, I'm sorry, into, I guess, base money in this case, bank reserves, can actually increase M2 by more than $1 through the money multiplier effect. Well, see, I'm not, I don't think that money multiplier is really a thing because again, that would assume the bank's balance sheets are constrained. And if the bank's balance sheets are unconstrained, meaning that Fed is going to either create reserves based on lending or they're just going to settle on their own balance sheets, then money multiplier they, they don't need money to lend they don't okay. need cash they don't need reserves to lend let me let me ask so you i this. think they're going to lend regardless of um you know anything to do with a, a money multiplier okay to not i'm going to try to simplify this just so we can keep progressing the discussion would it be more useful to talk about the expansion of bank reserves being the theft so when these bank reserves come into existence out of nothing, I mean they're not even reserves, right? They're just an entry no database. I, I don't move purchasing power. I don't think they really impact anything. Honestly, if you can, if you assume that the bank's balance sheets aren't really constrained by bank reserves, increasing those bank reserves, it's just you're kind of pushing on a rope. I mean, you it might have some psychological effect but i don't really think it does anything but before we go on, I, I forgot to go just for your viewers we talked about how that increases by 25 percent according to that fed uh paper it was as a result of the fed just happening to to buy uh, the majority of their qe from the non-bank entities and from businesses and individuals drawing down their credit line mm-hmm. so you go back to covid and, you know, everyone's freaking out and businesses are wondering, you know, they think they're going to be shut down for six months or eight months or whatever it is. So all these businesses that had like a hundred thousand dollar line of credit with Wells Fargo, they're like, okay, give me the money. Give me the money, <laughs> you know, quickly. I haven't used it five years. I got it. Now I need it. So they drew down uh, or, or they actually took out that loan, you know, that credit line they had, put it in their checking account. So those are the main two factors, according to the Fed, mm-hmm. as to why we saw that that twenty five percent increase and in, in boom. And I'd argue, you know, why that led to so much demand was because of the way that money got back into the economy through stimulus checks. It went from very low velocity money to very high velocity money, along okay. with you know supply chain disruption. All right. So, in the effort to get straight on our terminological thing here four trillion dollars of quantitative easing in 2021 that was the redistribution of purchasing power is that the way you would phrase it because i've I've, i've tried bank reserves inflation like the terms i put out it seems like it goes into your your nuance description and mechanically you're able to kind of say, no, that doesn't work for me. So I'm trying to get to something that does work for you where the debasement of currency is actually the redistribution of purchasing power, right? From one group to another. And I keep going to that 2021 example because that seems to be 
a very obvious time where the central bank was at least relevant um, in in the in the redistribution scheme, let's say. Yeah, I, well, I completely agree with that because again, that 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 twenty five percent increase in M two, or that increase of the Fed's balance sheet by four trillion, that that definitely definitely um, impacted the CPI. Yeah, uh, that that that's for sure. There's absolutely no doubt about that um, because assuming this Fed paper is right, and majority of that obviously. Um, like beyond CPI, well, you know, equities and bonds, everything was affected by that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because you had this money being given to, you know, PPP stimulus checks. You had that redistribution from, let's say, the, the current treasury holders mm -hmm. uh, that sold to the Fed. And then Janet Yellen taking that purchasing power from low velocity money <laughs> and then sending it out in stimmy checks into very high velocity money. And you combine that with the banks increasing their lending through either PPP or through these line of, the line of credits, which increased aggregate demand and M2 just that much more. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Um, so where do we go from here? I guess I would try to look at that year again through like a Bitcoin standard and what what would have mm -hmm. happened differently, right? It, yeah. Would yeah. $4 trillion in quantitative easing been palatable by the public? Would, would it have resulted in people, you know, pulling Bitcoin into self-custody or, or some other way to to vote against the the quantitative easing because one or, one or thing, before we even go there robert you can ask if the let's just say the the, the treasury uh let's say well i think their deficit's like five trillion wasn't it mm -hmm. so asking what would have interest rates done on treasuries if the Fed was not doing Q, so in other words, if all five trillion had to be absorbed by the private sector, mm -hmm. what would interest rates have been higher? If so, to what degree? And then, you know, taking the next leap into how would that have worked with Bitcoin? Um, you know, p would people have been willing to uh, lend or buy Bitcoin bonds, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, from the government? And if so, at, at what interest rate? You know, but I think before we get there, you we look at what happened to treasury yields mm -hmm. and then look at what happened to treasury yields in the past when they did quantitative easing and then say, without in, in the absence of the Fed, in QE, if the government would have sold the same amount, would the interest rates have been higher? And most people's default is just going to be, well, of course they would, because the Fed is just increasing this demand. You know, therefore, if you're increasing demand, supply, it's pretty simple. But then I think we've got to go back and look at QE 1, 2, and 3 and realize that interest rates went up, mm -hmm. went up because the market overwhelmed the right. fed yes the, the 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 fed increased demand but the market decreased demand even more <laughs> so yeah. so the 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 prices went down and the interest rates went up now would that have happened 
uh, definitely not during COVID. Because if you remember, I think the long end of the curve froze up mm -hmm. to where the Fed had to actually intervene and and because there was like zero liquidity. Mm -hmm. And especially in the corporate bond market, that's for sure. But then you you I think we have to ask, what if the Fed would have, uh, let's say now we're in 2021, 2022, uh, once they start raising rates, would the would the Fed or wouldn't excuse me, would the government have been able to float the two or three trillion dollars in deficit spending that they've done since M2 went up by 25 percent um, without the, the Fed doing quantitative easing uh, if they would have just sold at the front end of the curve. Mm -hmm. And so I, so in, in simple terms there, I think we discussed prior to hitting the record button that the one month treasury right now is trading at like a 50 or maybe even more because I've been on I've been traveling for last month but uh or excuse me the last few weeks but the one month treasury is trading at like 50 or 60 basis points below reverse repo and reverse repo is supposed to be the Fed's way of setting a floor mm -hmm. on the overnight rate which is real darn close to the one month <laughs> so what this is telling us is that there is massive demand for T-bills. Mm -hmm. And now you could argue as to how much demand there is at the long end of the curve. And people are going to say, oh, George, if you look at the tick data, you can see that uh, you know central banks are, are net sellers. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you look at the same tick data, you see that the private sector outside of the United States are net buyers which is one of the main reasons you can have a CPI at six or seven or eight or 9% and the 10 year treasury still trading at 3.5. That that in and of itself shows you that there's a lot of demand out there for even the long end, but there's massive demand for the front end. Yeah. Uh, because as you know, because that's collateral and there's a lot of different uh, incentives or motivations that would uh, prompt a, a large financial institution to buy at the front end, right? Yeah. So uh, again, I'm just adding that so we can go through that thought experiment of saying, okay, now we go back to 2020, 2021, understanding, uh, you know, what we said about QE one, two, and three, and then where interest rates are now and how they've performed, and how what would interest rates have done if the Fed would not have done quantitative easing? Would they have been different? Would they have been materially higher? Um, most likely. But again, I think there's that's actually open for debate. Yeah, it's it is an interesting thing to think about because in one, well, different temporal horizons, right? Quantitative easing is going to increase the uncertainty of the long-term credit worthiness of the government, right? Because obviously they're they're monetizing debt, um, but it would increase the certainty of its of its short-run viability because they're actually printing money, right? So, I guess QE. I think what it, I think the the reason if you're trying to parse through like QE one, two, and three, why interest rates actually went up, mm -hmm. and I'm talking about the ten year specifically. Uh, when they did QE, I, I think it was it goes back to uh, Fisher and uh, inflation expectations. 
Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. what happened is when the Fed did QE one, two, and three, the market said, "Oh my gosh, this is going to be inflationary." So long. So they sell their ten-year Treasuries at a rate that was higher than what the the Fed That's was demanding high. or what the, the Fed was buying, and therefore supply outstripped demand, price goes down, interest rate actually goes up, yeah. which is the opposite of what the Fed was trying to do. Right. They were trying to actually bring interest rates down. And, and on the long end uh, through through that process. So I, I think that's kind of why you saw that dynamic. Yes. And in that higher uncertainty environment too, the other effect on money, right, is actually creating more reservation demand for money. So as the uncertainty is increasing, people have a tendency to want to hold more cash as a hedge against uncertainty. Obviously, or now when you have a, a potential recession and you've got the, you know, why does the yield curve invert? Yeah, it's because every you know all these large pools of money, or one of the main reason is all these large pools of money are betting that interest rates are are going to be going down in the mm-hmm. future, and right. therefore you know they're trying to hedge their long book by buying ten year treasuries or thirty year yes. treasuries, and and uh, you know they're they're making that bet that inflation is going to be lower uh, in the future. And therefore, we're creating a lot of demand for those 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 treasuries above and beyond whatever the Fed is doing. You know, we've had the tenure. It's it's weird because um, you know, moving to 2022, uh, the Fed has been increasing interest rates, as you know, but we've seen the the tenure go up and then come all the way back down. So every time the Fed increases rates, it's almost like the tenure comes mm-hmm. down even further. You know. Uh, implying even more demand uh, as the Fed increases rates, the market's saying, hey, we think that the more you increase rates, the more you're guaranteeing a recession, right. and therefore disinflation. Right. And that's why, you know, you know so it's, uh, again, I think what, it just goes- That's what they're managing. The Fed isn't really in control. That's what they're managing too, right? Is the 10-year, they're trying to manage down inflation expectations. And the tenure is the the gauge for that or the proxy for that? Well, I think going back to QE one, two, and three, their objective was to bring down the tenure to to lower like mortgage rates. Hmm. And so that they could get rates down in the real economy that would uh bring down probably mortgage rates and credit card rates and you know all these things to incentivize spending. Because remember back then the the, the boogeyman was deflation. Yeah. They're actually trying to create inflation. Remember that that two percent inflation target? I mean, that sounds like ancient uh-huh. history now. But yeah. uh, remember, they're trying. You know, to, uh, their very best yeah. to create inflation. And um, again, I think it's ironic that uh, now they got it, and they can't control it. <laughs> um, yeah, the the market is going to do what it's going to do, no matter what. Okay, we've only got a little bit of time left here, but I think. We have enough time to go through at least one more point here. So, you know, I guess part core even to your argument, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we should be spending the right proportion of time on educating people about the value of small government, Um, you know, competing in the court of public opinion, if you will, to shrink government. And the yes, right because and sound money is, is not a panacea. Yep. Yes, and sound and some proportion to sound money as well, which is obviously important to some extent, depending on context, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my 
and I agree with you there, but a thought experiment I would like to advance is that fiat the the existence of fiat currency is actually a distortion of the voting mechanism right which we traditionally depend upon in a democracy to express our political preferences um now this example there's a book called the ethics of money production by, by an author named holzman and this is where I, I get this example but um and he's basically making the argument that the market economy could be understood as a system that's basically catering to the needs of consumers, um, you know, as expressed in money payments. So the example I always like to give is if I go into the market and I buy a car, I'm actually signaling to the market economy to produce more cars, right? I'm casting a vote to right. that, specifically the car that I buy, right? If I buy a 2020 Tesla, that's what I'm telling the market to make more of. And the inverse is also true. You go and sell a house, right? You're actually signaling to the market economy to produce less houses. So it's this, it's a real kind of grassroots democratic process taking place where, you know, one unit of currency or one unit of money is, is equal to one vote, if you will. And when you look at the market economy through that lens, and then you, you, consider that there's a central bank sitting in the middle of every modern market economy, there's that it's effectively an institution that can create its its own votes, right? We can, it is able to expand currency supplies and manipulate that process of consumers expressing their preferences in the marketplace and creating all the distortions that we've described today. So when you asked that question earlier, right, would you rather live in a society that believed in small government but was run on fiat currency or live in a society that believed in big government but was run on sound money i don't you know i feel like in a society running on fiat currency it almost doesn't matter what the democratic collective wishes are or preferences are of the majority because they can't be adequately expressed when through, the, through a democratic mechanism when in fact it's the central bank or the I'll put in the commercial banking system that surrounds the central bank as part of this as well they get a disproportionate amount of influence because they're effectively creating these new votes called you know currency units out of nothing or to the extent that they are creating them out of nothing they're able to uh disproportionately sway the vote of the market process let's say so how so do I you think- how would you wrestle with that because I'm you know, I, this is a bit of a rabbit hole because if you draw this conclusion to the end, you're like, oh, well, democracy is kind of a scam. It's really about the money that that creates the votes and movements in society. Democracy maybe has at least a limited effect, but I'd love to just hear what you think about that in general. Well, first, I think you have to compartmentalize the Fed and the commercial banking system because what you just described, again, assumes that the Fed has control or a significant amount of control over the amount of currency units uh, that is uh, is um, contributing to those votes, mm-hmm. as you said. So if if we assume for a moment that the Fed really doesn't control uh, the amount of M2, then the Fed isn't really impacting the voting system. So then it would be the, uh, the, the commercial banks, mm-hmm. right? But if it's the commercial banks then assuming that they don't have a perverse incentive 
which is the bill then they would right there you go like free banking they would lend for productive means Mm -hmm. and they would lend to businesses that would produce more goods and services because those are the entities that have the highest probability of paying them back And so, although, yes, the banking system is controlling the amount of M2, amount of currency units, I think if you could eliminate the the, or reduce the size of government, uh, then you would have a system where that additional increase might not be optimal, but it's, um, I think that's debatable, but at least it's it's not a massive anchor. Mm -hmm. At least it isn't extremely detrimental and another fun thought experiment is you know i i get the people that say well listen we want a fixed m2 supply uh full reserve banking because we want a consistent unit of measurement so um you know we uh, we always want to have 12 inches in a foot mm-hmm. as an example you hear that all the time but but i don't know that if we have 5% deflation, you're still changing the amount of inches in the foot, just like 5% inflation. I, so well, it, I would push that, back on that one, just that, um, again, a Bitcoiner would, again, disentangle monetary inflation from price inflation in that case. So they're, they're advocating for integrity of the money supply, not necessarily integrity of price consistency. Right, but the initial argument is that that the economy is going to function better if you always have twelve inches in a foot, meaning that if 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 the value of that currency unit relative to goods and services remains constant. That's where I'm. That's where I'm disagreeing. I don't think it's about the constancy of the relationship between the currency unit and goods and services. It's just the integrity of the money supply itself. So the less the money supply changes, the more it adequately reflects changes in the productive economy. But if you get okay, a so money supply that changes, obviously price changes become distorted. You don't know if it's policy yeah. or it's supply and demand fundamentals. Right. Okay. Got it. So then the the argument there is that if prices are going down by five percent, even though that may be uh, uh, an inconsistent amount of value of currency relative to goods and services, that would be optimal because that's what the free market is producing. But because that's a result of the free market and the decisions that are being made um, by the uh, by the uh, by the individuals pursuing their own self-interest. I think you could summarize the argument as that the money supply that changes least is best. All right, so an ideal right. money supply in a Bitcoiner world is a fixed money supply that you, it, there's it's no there's no noise. So the pricing signals that money, um, this would be everything. This would be because so there's the other weird thing in a Bitcoin world. There is no difference between base money and and broad. All right, you could say there's lending on top there of could it. Be if you introduce if you introduce full reserve. With a with a Bitcoin base layer, right? Then there there could be if there's IOUs that are produced by the fiduciary Correct. for the underlying base layer. Then theoretically, you could have an additional uh, uh, 
amount of broad relative to base. Yes. Um, although that base could be used as 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 broad, very similar to the way gold was. Yes. And the theory there is that because Bitcoin is more portable, um, mm. because it's sound money, you're obviously dissuaded from taking on debt because it tends to increase in purchasing power over time. And because it's hyper portable, you don't need to centralize the custody and like borrow currency units on top of it necessarily. So I think there's less of an incentive for there to be a higher proportion of broad money to base money in a Bitcoin world. Like another way of saying yes. global debt to GDP would contract, you know, 10x perhaps from what are we yeah, at? So this is what today, I really wanted to 20 or 30%. This is what I really wanted to discuss with you as well, because I think that we've really uh, discussed the sound money component of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we've discussed the Bitcoin standard mm -hmm. component of it. Right? Yes. Because there, there is a difference between gold being uh old sound money, money and bitcoin sound money for sure you got it you got no, it. i don't so, i don't think we should crack that can of worms right now though because if i'm going to get you okay. off in two hours we only got about five minutes <laughs> that one will definitely be an hour or more let me ask you one last question on this voting thing uh if you don't mind for us to wrap up let's assume there was a 100 percent public buy-in for smaller government um to the degree that you have it envisioned in your argument, right? That, I don't know, everyone starts watching Rebel Capitalist and they really fucking love it. And they're <laughs> like, all right, let's do this thing. How would that preference be expressed in your mind? Do you think this is a matter of people going to the voting booths and selecting the representative that vows to um, abolish the Fed? Like, how do you, how would that actually be? expressed in your view yeah organically word of mouth uh, through the voting booth and i think that this is I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because this is a way to end on a very in my opinion optimistic note mm -hmm. one of the things that i do on the channel as you know we, we both address is you know the global elite and the the, the world economic Parasites. forum imf you got it you got it you got it and it, it is even for me, it, sometimes it's it's tough not to have a defeatist type of attitude. Mm -hmm. But what always puts me in a good mood is when I think back to like the fall of the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and I Romania in particular, how they had this this dictator there that had been in place for like decades, and he controlled everything. Man, he controlled the police, he controlled the military. He controlled the guns. He controlled you name it. And um, what happened is 500,000 Romanians came together and stood up and decided they weren't going to take it anymore. And they didn't have any guns. They didn't have sound money. They, they didn't have anything. But as a group... They stood up and said, we are not going to take it anymore. They practiced civil disobedience. And basically 10 days later, they took the guy out in the back and shot him. Mm -hmm. Dictator, done. Another uh, thought experiment I like to use is 
going back to the lockdowns. You know, Phoenix is a city that I'm very familiar with, about 4 million people and a lot of gun owners. And they, the government locked them in a cage. And if you would add a thousand guys go out there with their guns, let's say, you and I both know what, have, what would have happened. The police, the military would have gone out there and they, they would have gotten completely wiped out. Mm-hmm. Done. But... But if all 4 million of them with no guns, none, all 4 million people in Phoenix would have just said, no, no, I'm not going to lock myself in a cage for the next six months. No, I'm taking my kid to school. Mm-hmm. No, I'm going to open up my business. The The police, the government, they, they would have been powerless. Mm-hmm. They, they would have. What are they going to do? Oh, OK, I guess we're opening up. You see, that's the power that we have. Mm. But it's like people, they they have to get pissed off enough mm-hmm. or something has to motivate them to, to create that sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm trying to do is 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 motivate them as, as much as I possibly can through you know YouTube and social media and and Twitter or whatever I can do so we don't have to get to a point where people can't afford to put food on the table or a roof over their head in order to get that motivation to impact change uh-huh. but the the good news is at the end of the day we have the power uh-huh. the, the collectively as a group we have the power to create whatever government we are motivated enough to create. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great, great point. And I, I would say that's what I love about you, George, is that, you know, when we were going through all this COVID psychosis, like you were beating that drum heavy, right? It's like people wake up, be free, think for yourself. Um, very much the same kind of trajectory. I'm, I'm trying to take myself on as well. Um and it's a good vignette too, because those Romanians, I think you said it was Romania, they had obviously felt an incredible amount of pain, right? Before they were sufficiently motivated to take action like that. And one of the great powers of education is you can actually learn through the pain of others where you don't have to experience the pain yourself, but you can study the lessons of history and and maybe avoid some of those outcomes. Especially now with the internet. That, so that's why I think this time could be different. You know, usually it's that cycle we talk about, whether you want to call it a fourth turning or that, uh, you know, hard times create strong men, create good times, create weak men, create hard times. I think we can we have the ability now with the Internet to break that cycle yes. and, and not have to go through that again. If enough of us can stand up and try to convince and persuade our fellow uh, citizens the, the the values of of voting for small government lower taxes yes and i agree people have the power but we need the motivation and historically that takes a lot of pain maybe we can help contribute to that as educators to make it not require quite so much pain but the last thing i would add to that and i think you would agree is the power that people have is amplified when people have guns or when people have sound money, you know, when people have these tools that let them leverage their preferences over the government even more. Like it's one thing to be 5 million people 
rising up against the dictator or five, whatever, 500,000. It's another thing if it's 500,000 armed people or it's 500,000 people moving all of their savings into Bitcoin. You know, there, there are these other, there are ways to use these tools to give the power of the people even more leverage over the state. Yeah, I'm just trying to, with this whole conversation, what I've been, you know, trying to do here is just let people know that in in my opinion, we've got an assortment of tools, but some tools have way more of an impact mm-hmm. than others. And, and that persuasion is how I think we can have the maximum uh, benefit and impact for output of energy. Mm. If we're going to sit here and just, um, you know, talk or just try to convince people to hodl Bitcoin or to just buy gold mm-hmm. or just buy gold and guns and just do nothing else I, that to me although that's a, a tool that's not going to have the impact that not the impact we need especially with the cycle that we're talking about that we have to focus our our time and energy or the majority of our time and energy in my opinion on where we have the most impact mm. and and to me that's just persuasion Love it. Okay. Well, we barely scratched the surface of this conversation, so we'll have to do a part two. Um, yeah, I'd love to do a part two because I know a lot of the the your viewers are going to be saying, well, Bitcoin, you know, because it's portable, because it has all of these benefits, that will reduce the size of government. As an example, it would allow people who are fed up to go ahead and take their purchasing power and move to another country right. or another area where um you know they could vote with their feet and whatnot and where with a gold uh standard you know that sound money you couldn't really do that to to the same degree and that's a great argument and i think that once we've now discussed the sound money in the next stage we can talk about not just sound money but more specifically uh, sound money as it pertains to a bitcoin standard and try to think instead of looking at the past and history look into the future and determine you know what that might look like and would that move the needle any more than um a a, a gold standard sound yeah. money yeah uh, absolutely that's exactly where i want to go with this george thank you so much man always good talking to you thanks for having me buddy